Well, good morning. It is. It's good to see you all. Some of you are applauding. Some of you are saying, get on with it. Let's go. It's good to see you all. We, uh, we missed you while we were gone. Um, and I just want to say to you all as a congregation, Thank you for being so generous. Um, you know, our elders have had a policy for a long time, and I, and I thank them as well. Uh, the sabbatical policy, uh, which sees the hope of building longevity in ministry through practices like that. But I'm very aware that not everybody has that kind of privilege in their vocation, in their calling. And so um, I have prayed for you that God would give you rest. Uh, and we have felt very uh, much received by the Lord in our time away. And I guess the, the summary statement that I would say, and. I know that over the weeks to come, there's gonna, you're gonna hear a lot. There's just been a lot that God has done in these 13 weeks in my own mind and heart, but uh, I would say Amanda and I have just felt so deeply loved by God, just reminded again of how rich and deep, how wide and long and high his love is um, and what a good father he is. So and I believe that's a, a good place to come from in returning back now to, um, to serve in this capacity as your pastor and felt very much uh, overjoyed to be back home. So we get to visit a lot of churches, but there's no place like home, truly. Uh, so it's good to be back home with you. And I trust that you were blessed by the pastors who got to share with us over the last you know, 14 weeks, and our team did such an awesome job. And so I am glad to be back with you. If you've got a Bible, go with me to John chapter six. We're gonna look at verses. We're gonna read verses 25 through 40, but we're gonna look at some verses around those as well as we uh, start a new series today. So over the last 14 weeks, what we've been looking at, if you've been around during those weeks, is how different biblical characters teach us about what it means to follow Jesus. What do they reveal about God? How do they teach us, uh, what do they teach us about following Jesus? And what I wanna do with the last bit of our summer, the, the next five weeks, is spend the time going now directly to the words of Jesus himself and seeing who he is for us, who God has made him for us, and what it looks like to see him in his own words. So we're calling this series I Am because we're gonna look in the Gospel of John at seven I Am statements. It's a tool that John uses to organize the theological lesson of his Gospel where he's wanting to teach us and bring us to belief in Jesus as the Son of God. And so he shows us a lot of miracles, but he gives us these I am statements, there's seven of them, and we're gonna talk a little bit more about why he makes these statements the way he does. So we're gonna dig in today to the first of those I am statements in John chapter six, uh, verses 25 through 40, as I said, where Jesus says, I am the bread of life. How many of you, just out of curiosity, have heard that statement before, that Jesus has said, I am the bread of life? Okay, so a lot of you, and maybe you haven't, and that's okay. What I want to do today is sort of help you understand that. All right, so now, the thing you need to know is that this might meet you, depending on where you are, very differently. And John knows that, because as John writes his gospel, he has three audiences in mind, and they keep coming up over and over again throughout the story of Jesus' life. And those three groups are the crowd, the religious leaders uh, that Jesus interacts with, and the disciples. And there's distinctions between where these, each of these folks are, and they're meant to represent how we might encounter Jesus, where we might be, but for all of us, whether we find ourselves like the crowd, who is a group of people who's, they're interested in Jesus, but probably more for what he might do for them or give to them than for he himself. Uh, there's the religious leaders who are just skeptical of Jesus' claims. They don't agree with the things that he is saying, and they have a bone to pick with Jesus. And that might be you. You might have a bone to pick with Jesus today as you enter into this place. You might be thinking, I, am, I, I don't agree uh, with the claims of Jesus. And can I just say, you're in the right place. You are in the right place. I hope that you'll ask those questions and keep asking them uh, and go on the journey with us as we see what Jesus might say to you who are skeptical of his claims when he says, I'm the bread of life or I'm the light of the world or I am the door I am the way. He's gonna have a lot to say to you. I hope you'll have ears to hear it. The last group is the disciples, and they are a group of people who are deeply satisfied in Jesus, but they're not always sure why. And that's gonna be a lot of you today. You're going to see Jesus say, I'm the bread of life, and you're gonna say, I, I seek to find my ultimate satisfaction in Jesus and all that he is. I've, I believe in his claims, and yet I can't always put words to why he is who he is to me. Have you felt that way? 
And we feel that way in relationships all the time, don't we? There aren't words necessarily sometimes to express why we feel the way we do or believe the way we believe about this person in whom we're in relationship. And so for you, I want to help you understand why it is that Jesus is so deeply and ultimately satisfying. I wanna help you examine through the words of God, through the words of Jesus in this text, why that is the case. And perhaps there'll be some new thoughts here for you today that will help you begin to sort of connect the dots. Oh, yes, that's, you know, if you've ever read a good book, uh, a lot of times you'll find that they say something in words that you've always felt but you never could express it, right? I, I, I felt that, I just didn't know how to say it, and then they said it, and that, it resonated. And I think we'll find that in the words of Jesus today. So here's our, our ultimate proposition, our question, what we're after today is to answer one simple question, is why is it that Jesus is so ultimately satisfying? Why should you be so satisfied? by him, or why are you so satisfied by him? Maybe in, words that you, in ways that you can't put words to. So let's look then at the text, John chapter six, verse 25 through 40, we're gonna read. But like I said, there's a lot going on around these. Now let me set the stage for us. Here's what's happened. The beginning of chapter six, Jesus has performed the miracle of feeding 5,000 uh, men and even more women and children, so 5,000 plus folks from just a handful of loaves and fish. He has fed them. Then he has uh, gone away to pray, and at night he has walked from one side of the Sea of Galilee to the other across the water, uh, getting in the boat with the disciples and then immediately landing at the shore. And now the crowd has looked around and been like, where did he go? And they have made their way around the Sea of Galilee and found him again because if someone makes a a few loaves and fish turn into enough food to feed 5,000 plus people, you might wanna find that person. So they go looking for him again, and that's where this conversation picks up now. On the other side of that loaves and fish miracle, which is part of why Jesus is going to talk about bread. So here's what he says, beginning in verse 25. When they found him, that's the crowd, when they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? Jesus answered them, truly, truly I say to you, you are seeking me not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves, you see the crowd there, right? Like you, you got the bread, and so you're coming looking for more of that, right? And he says, do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you, for on him God the Father has set his seal. Then they said to him, what must we do to be doing the work of God? Jesus answered them, this is the work of God, that you believed in him whom he has sent. So they said to him, and what sign do you do that we may see and believe you? What work do you perform? Presumably more than multiplying fish and loaves, apparently. Our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness as it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. Jesus then said to them, truly, truly I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. They said to him, sir, give us this bread always. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me and yet do not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life. And I will raise him up on the last day. He's gonna go on to say more, but for now, that's the thrust or the center of our text that I want you to see. So, friends, as I said, the I am statement here for us, the first one is, I am the bread of life, all right? So I have organized all our, all our points today around this idea of bread. If you grab the sermon notes, they won't be immediately apparent what I mean by them as I say them, but I just needed to have bread in it, okay? So stick with me, it feels a little cheesy. We'll explain it and we'll get in deeper as we go and hopefully Uh, it will grab our attention. So, as Jesus says he's the bread, 
He's saying, I am able to bring an ultimate type of satisfaction to you. Anyone who feeds on me, anyone who takes, partakes of me, will never hunger, and they will never thirst again. Do you see what a big claim that is, yes? He's saying, not I can satisfy your physical hunger, but what he's saying is, I satisfy every one of your deepest needs and desires. I am ultimately satisfying, not just functionally satisfying, I don't just do the job, I am the ultimate place of satisfaction for you emotionally, intellectually, existentially, which just means the, I answer the big questions of life, like why are we here, what's my purpose, those kinds of things, right? I am the thing that can bring ultimate satisfaction at every single one of those levels, relationally, and perhaps you're like the crowd here today, and you're saying, I'm kind of looking for my relational satisfaction elsewhere, and he's saying, no, no, I'm the ultimate satisfaction for you. Or you're skeptical, and he's saying, listen, I am the thing that can satisfy you, whether you believe that or not, it's true, and I'm gonna invite you to see that. There's an invitation here for you. So as he says that, he's saying, I and I alone can satisfy, and so I just want to show you why. Why is it that Jesus can satisfy in a way that nothing else can? See if you agree. All right? So the first thing just comes from this statement that he uses, this I am statement. Now we need a little background in order to understand how uh, huge the thing that he's saying is. It sounds like just normal English, I am the bread of life, and the bread of life part seems like it's where all the content is going to be. We're gonna understand what that means. This is you'll never hunger, you'll never thirst. But we need to begin with the first part of that statement. Now, if you've ever read the Bible beginning to end, there's this really important chapter in Exodus chapter three, and in verse 14, God has called a man named Moses to help free or to lead his people, Israel, out of slavery in Egypt. And when he shows up and talks to Moses, Moses has a question for God. He says, look, if I'm gonna go to them and say, God's using me to lead you, they're gonna ask, who sent me? Who do I say? And God says to him, tell them I am who I am. I am has sent me to you. Now, here's why that's important. Because when Jesus says, I am, every one of these seven times, I am the bread of life. I am the light of the world. The first part of that statement is a claim to be God. It's a claim to be divine. The most clear place that shows up is in John 8, 58. After saying he's the light of the world, Jesus then continues the conversation with some of the skeptical folks. And he says to them, they're having a whole conversation, and he says, before Abraham ever existed, he doesn't say I was, claiming like this pre-existence. He says, before Abraham was, I am. And they pick up rocks to stone him to death because he's making a claim to be God. He's quoting or taking the name of God from Exodus 3 and claiming it for himself. Everybody follow that? So here's why that's important, all right? So he's saying, I am, and then he's gonna fill up some content on the backside of that with whatever he finishes the sentence with, right? But it's not normal English. He is saying, I mean, it is and it isn't, right? As he writes it, he's making this divine claim. So what he's saying is, I am so deeply satisfying because I reveal God to you. I am God in the flesh, and God alone is the source of all satisfaction. He's the creator of life. He's the sustainer of life. Therefore, there is nothing that can satisfy the way he can satisfy, and I reveal him to you. Not only that, then, but this I am statement is both a revealing type of statement, like I do a unique work of revealing God, it's also what we call a mediatorial phrase, a mediatorial statement. And what we mean by that is this, is that Jesus alone mediates between us and God. It's a statement about access. And we're gonna see this in all these seven I am statements. Most of them, many of them, are access kinds of statements. When he says, I am the light of the world, he's saying, I make you see so that you can see the Father. I am the way. I am the one who brings you along the path of access to the Father. I am the door. I'm the one you have to go through in order to be brought to the Father. He says, I stand in this unique place between a human person and the God who created them. You are separated from him by your sin and rebellion, but I and I alone stand in this middle ground between you and can bring you home to him. I can give you access to him. So when Jesus says, I am 
fill in the rest of the sentence, he is saying, I reveal the Father and I give you access to the Father. And because I do those two things and the Father is where the satisfaction is found, I am the source of satisfaction. Jesus can say, I am the bread of life. You will never hunger if you come to me. You will never thirst again because he can get you to and reveal to you the Father. Now, I was reading about Magellan uh, not too many weeks ago. How many of you have ever read about Magellan and he's the first one to circumnavigate the globe? Yes, are we aware of this? If you're interested in history, his journey's really interesting. He takes off from Spain with five ships in his armada, 240 men, just in your head. Think now, how many of them make it all the way? All the way around the globe with all the trials and travails and all the places they land and the days at sea. They thought it was gonna take a third of the amount of time it actually took. They thought the Pacific was a small ocean. They were wrong. It's a big one. And so they're out there for 97 days in a row at sea without ever landing on an island. And as they're going, here's what happens. Of the 240 men, one ship and 18 people make it. One ship, 18 men circumnavigate the globe. That is it. What do you think killed most of the men who didn't make it? 61% died of scurvy. Do you know what you need to be healed from scurvy? Vitamin C. You just need an orange. You just need a lime. That's all they needed. They didn't know it. No one knew what cured scurvy. And almost two-thirds of his crew die because there's a meal that they have access to as they land on these islands if they'll just have it, and they don't know they need it. And so man after man after man dies of this awful, horrible sickness. When we say that God is the only source of satisfaction, that's what we mean. You may not realize you need the vitamin C. That doesn't mean you don't need the vitamin C. Now, listen, some of you might be asking yourself, right? And then I'm, I'm gonna move forward. I'm not gonna linger here too long, but I need to at least address because the reality is many of us have met people and you might be one of them here today who go, I'm, I'm perfectly happy without God. Like you're saying that God is the source of all satisfaction. That's what makes Jesus so satisfying or one of the things that makes him so ultimately satisfying. But I'm perfectly happy without Jesus. But let me just throw this your way. You can ponder it. You can sit with it. See if it resonates, all right? It is, it is really almost a cliche how often at this point in our society, we, we don't seem to get the message, but again and again, how many times have you heard someone who's famous, someone who's achieved the pinnacle of success in their career sort of say, is this all there is? It's an expression of not being ultimately satisfied, right? So you don't have to look long for this. That's why I say it's almost a cliche. I, yesterday, I'm listening to a podcast. It's about sports, right? Chuck Klosterman's on there. He's a a uh, uh, pop culture commentator, really interesting, thoughtful guy. I really enjoy listening to him. He does not share uh, our faith, for those of you who are, who are believers. And I'm listening to him, and he's, here comes the subject again. They're ta he's talking with the host about why is it that so many athletes, so many artists, win a Grammy, an Oscar, a, a, a title in their sport, they reach the pinnacle, and then there's this sense of, is this all there is? Surely there's gotta be more. Why is it that Pat Riley had to coin the phrase the disease of more, where he said it's so hard to win multiple titles in a row in the, in the National Basketball Association because guys win and then they, they're not satisfied with it so they, want, they look somewhere else. They look for more money or more fame or more deals and so they leave and they do something else. It's just, it's never enough. Why does that happen? Why is that such a, I mean, I'm not alone in, in having seen this all over the place, yes? Why is it the case? Well, here's Chuck Klosterman's answer, and I immediately just thought, oh, it breaks my heart that you think that's the answer, all right? Now, I'm not as smart as this guy, but I was immediately like, ooh. His answer was, contentment does not go hand in hand with being uber-talented. He said, if you're deeply, like, majestically talented, you're just never gonna be satisfied. Do you see that what he's saying is the reason that you want more the reason it's not satisfying when you win the title or get the Grammy or at the top of your profession, the reason is because you're so talented, you'll just never be satisfied. Well, that's just crushing. Because, well, I'm not this guy, but some of you are uber-talented. What Chuck just told you is you'll never be happy. That's brutal, yeah? 
He's also kind of slapped the rest of us in the face because if we are satisfied, he's like, it's just because you're not that bright. <laughs> oh, okay. I was like, I feel pretty content in life. I must not be talented. It's, I mean, so it's a little egotistical. It's a little, it's a little just depressing, right? And what I want to say to Chuck is, like, dude, it's not that the talent is not the culprit. The uber ability is not the culprit. The culprit is the things they're trying to find in satisfaction in can't give it. Those things don't satisfy. God alone can satisfy. And I, I mean, you just see that play out again and again and again, right? And so, you know, again, you won't have to look long. If you, if you said, this week I'm gonna look for indicators that people who have reached the pinnacle of some objective that they've been seeking are ultimately not satisfied because they go off making other choices uh, or doing other things or have this sense of like, is this all there is? You won't have to look long to find it. And if that's such a repetition, then perhaps David is right in Psalm 27, verse four, when he says, one thing have I asked of the Lord, that will I seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. When I started sabbatical, I asked the Lord, I said, would you just give me one thing? In the grand scheme of life, 13 weeks isn't much. And I found myself going, I, I probably, Lord, I, can probably, I don't know that I'm able to take in 10, 15, 20 lessons, you know? Is there just one thing that you want to really communicate to me in these 13 weeks? And that was it, Psalm 27, four. He just kept bringing it up and bringing it up and bringing it up, and he and I talked a lot about it, <laughs> and I pondered it a lot. But the baseline of that is to say, Trent, the one thing above all things is that you would want to gaze upon my beauty, that you would want to know me deeply and intimately and inquire of me in my temple, that you would want to be in relationship with me. I am the only thing that can satisfy you. And here we find Jesus saying, I'm the bread of life. I can bring you to God and reveal God to you and that's why I'm so satisfying because I and I alone can do that. Everybody with me so far? All right, so let's go to the second thing then. And let's ask this question. Um, again, why is Jesus so satisfying? The first thing is because he's nutritious bread. I was gonna say nutritious and delicious but that felt even way too cheesy. <laughs> All right, the second thing is that he's free bread. He is free bread bread. Now, follow the conversation he has with the crowd. It's really interesting, right? So in verse 20, go to verse 27, 28 again. Let's look at that. It says, he says, do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life. So he's telling them, you're looking for the wrong kind of bread. Stop looking for lesser bread. He says, which the Son of Man will give to you, for on him God the Father has set his seal. And then they said to him, what must we do to be doing the works of God? Do you see what they did? He says, you need to look for a different kind of bread. And they said, what work do we need to do? They focus on the work part, not the bread part. And Jesus is going to then answer them in verse 29. Jesus answered them, this is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. Now, how gracious is Jesus that in that moment he doesn't say, you're getting it wrong. You're asking the wrong question. He just takes their question and responds to it and says, okay, all right, you're asking about what work you need to do in order to have, you know, the food you need. And I'm telling you, seek better bread. And let me just tell you, here's what you do to get the bread of God. Belief. Believe. There's this uh, famous dessert I think they made it in 2016. I don't know if they still make it. Uh, a restaurant called Arnaud's in New Orleans, Louisiana. They made it for Valentine's Day in 2016. Just in your head now, think most expensive dessert on earth, okay? In your head, I want you to come up with a figure. Think about what, how much do you think you would pay at Arnaud's to go in and have the strawberries Arnaud? This is the most expensive dessert on the planet. Everybody got a number in their head? I bet you're wrong. Because <laughs> here's the answer. The answer is $9.85 million. <laughs> that better be some good strawberries. Right? Now, here's the thing I didn't tell you. It comes with a 10-carat diamond ring. <laughs> so you're like, you cheated. If you look at most expensive desserts, there's a lot that are 50000 75000 I mean, it's insane. 
right? But here's, here's my point. If the best bread in the world, the most satisfying dessert that you could ever have is not affordable to you, if you can't access it, then it's no good. It can't satisfy if you can't eat it. Like we don't invite friends over to our house and say, come in, sit them down at the table, put food in front of them and say, no, 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 don't eat that. Just smell it and look at it. If you can't eat the bread, the bread can't satisfy. And friends, let me tell you, the price to eat the bread of Jesus, the price to to receive the righteousness of God is perfection, moral perfection. Every thought, every attitude, every action, every moment, perfect in righteousness. And none of us can pay that price, but Jesus paid it for us so that now he is bread that is free, which means we can actually eat the bread. Praise God. That's the second reason he's so satisfying is he's available to us. We can have him. If we will receive his offer, he can be ours and we can be satisfied. So we gotta go a little deeper now. We're gonna spend a little more time on this point and then the last two points are gonna be a little bit shorter but I need you to see how he speaks about believing here. So we believe So he is free of charge, right? It's like Isaiah 55 when he says, come all who are hungry, come all who are thirsty and receive bread at no cost. Receive the finest wine at no cost, right? That's what Isaiah is saying. Jesus is mirroring that. He's saying you you only need to believe. But then he, he parallels believe three different times in this dialogue that he has a couple times with the religious leaders who are skeptical and a couple times with the crowd. Or I guess a couple times with the crowd and once with the religious leaders. And he parallels this idea of believing when he says, all who come to me and believe in me, so he's making coming to him and believing in him parallel ideas. Do you see that? And then he says, all who look on me and believe in me will have eternal life. So he's making looking on him and believing in him parallel ideas. So in other words, if you wanna know what does it mean to believe, then you need to understand what it means to come and what it means to look. What is he trying to convey through those? And then the last one is he said, everyone who feeds on me. Now he says specifically, if you have to eat or feed on my flesh and drink my blood, and that's gonna become a real problem for people. Right, because you can imagine, that's an interesting, we're gonna talk about that here in a moment. But here's what I want you to understand. If I need to, only need to believe in order to find ultimate satisfaction through Jesus, that's how I access this ultimately satisfying bread, and believing is paralleled with coming and looking and feeding, what I want you to see is, he's not saying you will be satisfied when you and your mind get the facts right about me. He's saying you will be satisfied in your mind and in your heart and in your relationships when you learn to come into an intimate and close relationship with me. Come. That's invitational. Do you see that? Come, and I will satisfy. Look. It's not an invitation to just like look from afar. It's like come up close and examine. Come and, come and behold me. Come and enjoy what you, what you see. I am glorious and wonderful. When you look at me, you're looking at something that's unlike anything else. It, I will astound you if you will look at me. He's paralleling those with belief. And then he says, feed on me. Now, that one, we got it even spend another minute here on, because when he says feed on me, let's look at it in the text. Go to verse 54, because I wanna show it to you. It's where we really, kind of the rubber meets the road here, because if we're gonna find Jesus to be so satisfying, we need to understand this. In verse 54, again, now he's talking with the skeptics, those who are opposed to him. And in verse 53, actually, let's start there. He says, so Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. So in other words, if you're going to believe, it's gonna be because you have feasted on his flesh and partaken of his blood. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life. And I will raise him up on the last day. 
Okay, let me ask you a question. Do you see how he's saying, if you feast on me, if you feed on me, you get eternal life, so that's equivalent to believing, yes? Because he already said, if you believe, you will have what? Eternal life. So if you feed on me, you will have what? Eternal life. So feeding and believing are equivalent to one another. That's what I need you to see. So what does it mean to feed on him? He's saying, you must learn to find meaning in my death. When he's talking about feasting, he's not literally inviting you to cannibalism. Everybody agree with that? I'm not saying eat my bread, eat my body, drink my blood. He is figuratively or metaphorically saying, you must find my death on the cross to be a feast for you. Now let me explain what that means. Because you can't be satisfied unless you believe. And you can't believe unless you feast. And you, the thing you feast on is his death and then, by extension, his resurrection. So what does it mean to feast on the death of Jesus? Well, I'll offer you a few things, okay? It means to find his death, number one, necessary. That you don't say it's, it's one way among many. It's one good thing, it's a good moral act, but there's lots of good moral acts. The first thing when we feast upon the death of Jesus is we see it's necessity. We say, nothing else can do what it can do. Nothing else can pay for sin except the blood of Jesus. We sang that at the beginning of our time together, yes? So I feast on the blood of Jesus when I forsake every other mode of being made right with God. My own good works, the eightfold path of Buddhism, the five pillars of Islam, I eschew them all and I say there is one and only one way to be reconciled to God and it is the death of his son for my sins. It is necessary. You don't feast until you see it's necessity. Not only is it necessary, we see it as compelling. We look upon the cross of Jesus and we feast when we are moved in the depth of our being by the sacrificial love of the cross. No one has ever done what he has done and no one will ever do again what he has done. There is no greater love than this that a man would lay down his life for his friend. And I call you my friends. When Jesus died, he didn't die for his own sin. He died for yours, he died for mine. And when we are compelled by that kind of love, we, we are beginning to feast. Do you see that? You haven't feasted until you've seen it as necessary and compelling. You haven't feasted until you've also seen it as, this is a theological term, efficient. And I don't mean efficient in the sense of like, I got the house cleaned really efficiently today. I mean efficient, I mean effective. That it has power that nothing else has. It's necessary, it is compelling, and it accomplishes what it says it can accomplish. It is powerful. We begin to feast on the, on the death of Jesus when we see that it is not just efficient, it is, here's another theological term for you, we'll explain it, sufficient which means I never need to look anywhere else and it never has to be done again. I feast upon the death of Jesus when I say he'll never need to die again and I will never need anything else but that death. I'm not gonna add my own works. I'm not gonna look to my own righteousness. I'm gonna return to the cross again and again and again and I'm gonna say it's enough. There's no moment where I turn to the cross and say I'm not sure that that covers this problem that I have. It is sufficient. And the last, we feast upon the cross of Jesus. Not only when we find it sufficient and efficient and compelling and necessary, but also when we find it directive. And what I mean by that is when we take up the cross as the answer to every one of our moral questions and directions in life. You want to know how to behave or live or uh, operate in the world, look to Christ on his cross, the humility and sacrificial love of that cross, and let that ethic take hold of your mind and make every decision bound up and wrapped in that action. This is why Paul can say in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 24, to the world the cross is foolishness, but to those of us who have believed, those of us who are being saved, he says it is the what? The wisdom and the power of God. Why can he say that? Here's what he's saying. 
When I take up the cross, what is wisdom? Wisdom is taking knowledge and applying it to a daily life kind of a situation in a way that makes you fruitful, that makes you live in a way that bears fruit unto God, right? And so he says, you wanna know what wisdom is? Take the cross and its humility and its love and apply it now and its truth about who God is and apply it to that situation in your workplace and apply it to how you raise your children and apply it to your marriage. Keep applying the ethic of the cross and as you do, here's what's gonna happen. You're gonna find that it's gonna bear fruit in your life because you're being wise. Because the cross is wisdom, not self-promotion, self-sacrifice, not arrogance, humility. And as I apply those things, it's fruitful because it works because it's the dynamic of God at play in the world. Do we see? And then not only that, he says the cross is power. If I'm feasting on the cross and finding it directive, then here's what that means. It means that I look to the cross for power. When I face spiritual battles, spiritual attack, what do I do? I claim the power of the cross and the victory of the blood and demons flee from Jesus because he is powerful. As I take up the ethic of the cross, guess what grows in me? Character. And when I have character, what do I have? I have power. I have weightiness. What makes your words carry any weight whatsoever? It's your character. When you embrace the cross as a directive and your character grows, what else grows? Your weightiness of character and therefore the power with which you move through the world. You want your words to carry weight? Feast on the cross. Find it to be your directive. Okay, that's like we, we dug down and then we dug down some more. Everybody okay? All right, good, some of you are like, not really. All right, come back up, we're gonna come back up now, but we needed to spend a little time there. Okay, so we feast on the cross, that's equivalent to believing, and believing is how we are satisfied with Jesus rather than through our own works. All right, I said the next two are a little bit shorter. Let me just, this one is the silliest of all the statements. We said Jesus is uh, nutritious bread. We said he is uh, free bread. I almost lost my train of thought. He is free bread. The next one, he is cosmic bread. What on earth are you talking about? This is not 1970. You didn't show up at the disco tonight, all right? It's not nighttime, it's morning. All right, so he is cosmic bread. Here's what I mean by that. When we talk about the cosmos, biblically, we're always talking about the, the entire universe, right? That's what the cosmos means biblically. So when we say Jesus is cosmic bread, what I'm saying is he is the center of all of God's plans. Part of the reason he's so ultimately satisfying, and this may be something you didn't realize, is because when you start to take up belief in him, what you're doing is aligning your individual life with God's purposes throughout all of human history. And that's part of why you've stopped trying to fit the square peg of your life into the round hole of God's design for the entire universe. Part of the reason you're not satisfied outside of Christ, part of the reason those other things can't satisfy is because they don't fit the narrative that God is crafting through all of human history. If God is the creator of everything and he's telling a story and moving history uh, in all one direction, like he has a trajectory to the story that he's telling in human history, and if my life is trying to be about some other trajectory, am I ever gonna find satisfaction? The answer is no. But he's saying, when you come to me as the center of God's plan, the one who's making the trajectory go forward in the direction God is wanting it to go, then you are aligning yourself with the very thing God is about, and therefore you find satisfaction. Does that make sense? Let me show you where that comes from. Look at verse 32 through 35. He says this. He says, Jesus then said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. So here's what he's just said there. If you uh, have read the Old Testament before, you might remember this story in the Old Testament where uh, Israel has come out of slavery in Egypt and they're starving in the wilderness and they cry out to God and he provides manna from heaven for them to eat. He provides this type of bread and he provides it for 40 years for them in the wilderness. He keeps daily 
providing something. And what the crowd is saying to Jesus is, look, you're saying that you are God's representative. You're, you've come down from heaven. You are the one who represents God. Prove it. Give us a sign. And they point to Moses and say, Moses did a sign as evidence that he was God's representative, right? He did that sign, so you need to do a sign. And Jesus' response is to say, I don't need to do a sign. I am the sign. I am the bread that comes out from heaven. And then he makes a point about the manna. He says, not only am I, you look at me and you're gonna see that I'm from God. Not only is he saying that, he's also saying the manna wasn't just about the manna. God gave the manna not first and foremost to prove that Moses was his servant and that they should follow Moses. He gave the manna to point to the day that's right in front of you right here, right now, crowd. I'm here and I am the true bread that comes down from heaven. What Jesus is saying is every single work of God points to me. Every lesser bread when God rains manna down from heaven and it's a miracle and it's amazing and God's people eat it and they live, they still died eventually. Yes, did you see that? They still died eventually. But whoever eats me, the true bread, Jesus says, will never die. The manna wasn't there just to make a point about Moses. The manna was there to show you that you need even better bread than this and that better bread is coming, and I am here now, and I am that better bread. One of the reasons that we probably don't even realize that Jesus, if we are followers of his, is so satisfying to us, is because he is the center of everything that God is doing in the world, and when we align our lives with his purposes, when we come to him and partake of him, we are saying, I want to join God's story. I want to be moving in the trajectory that God is moving the entire world. And friends, can I tell you this? Romans 5 tells us, even if you are suffering in the midst of that and it's difficult, he says that your hope of being about that trajectory will not be put to shame because God's love will be poured into your heart through the Holy Spirit and you will not be ashamed also because that trajectory of history will reach its final conclusion and you will find that you joined the right part of that story. Does that make sense? All right, last thing that we see here is that the Father brought us to the table to eat the bread. So Jesus is not just satisfying because he's free bread, not just satisfying because he is the center of God's story in the world. He's also satisfying because it's the Father who brought us to the table to eat the bread that is Jesus. Now, here's what I mean. When he's talking to the crowd, look again at what he says in verse 37 and then in verse 44. So he says, I said to you in verse 36 that you've seen me and yet do not believe. And he's explaining why that's happened. In verse 37, he says, all that the Father gives me will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. Now there's two very important parts to that statement. But verse 44 explains the first part even further. So go down to verse 44. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. And I will raise him up on the last day. So here we have this idea of drawing and this idea of all that the Father gives to me will come to me. Here's what I want you to see, church. Uh, immediately you read those and you see uh, something of this idea of election and predestination. And while I'm not gonna unpack all that for you today, here's what I will say. In the scriptures, as you read them, you're just gonna have to get comfortable with this idea. God's sovereign control of all things, including his drawing and directing of us to Christ, and our culpability and freedom of choice and responsibility for those choices are completely compatible in the economy of God. They are not contrary to one another and they are both pictured and spoken to in the scriptures again and again. So you will live, if you, if you wanna follow a biblical worldview, you will live in that tension of God's sovereign power and drawing as well as yours and my culpability for our actions. It is just the way the story unfolds. Now, that's all I'm gonna say to that today and I know I'm leaving a lot of unanswered questions. But here's what I want you to see because we're focused on what it means for Jesus to be ultimately satisfying as the bread of life. Do you see that part of the reason that he's so satisfying is because if he's saying, everyone who's come to me 
is someone that the Father has given to me. It's someone the Father's drawn to me. What he's saying is, if you're in Christ, it's because the Father gave you to Jesus as a gift that the Son has joyfully received. There's so much deep joy to be found and satisfaction in knowing that it was the Father's pleasure to give you to the Son and it was the Son's pleasure to receive you and then to say, I will never cast you out. I'll never get tired of this gift of the Father and I will never leave you. No one can take you out of my hands or snatch you. Let me give you an illustration of this. A couple years ago, uh, like a lot of you, we made the brilliant decision to get a dog during COVID. All right, so now we love our dog. Her name's Scout, she's a Vishla. She's really beautiful, really fast, got a lot of energy, right? We surprised our kids on Christmas Day with this dog. So we walked in, the kids are seated on the floor, eyes closed, we put the puppy down, and she is cute, all right? We put the puppy down, the kids open their eyes, and now I, the father, and my wife, the mother, we are giving our kids a gift, and they open their eyes, and they squeal with delight. I mean, oh my goodness! You know, Kenley is like, is this our dog? And we're like, "Uh uh-huh. My son, who's like six at the time, looks and goes, he's speechless, he's overwhelmed, and the first words out of his mouth are, we're gonna have to pick up a lot of poop. Yes, Uh uh-huh. Now listen, here's the fun part, okay? Because the kids are thrilled to receive the gift. I, the father, am thrilled to give the gift. But do you know what else happened in that moment? The dog, who was a little like, what's going on? Forgive that, that was weird. (laughs) The dog goes bananas. The dog is licking their faces and jumping on them and wagging her little tail as fast as it'll go because the pleasure of the one receiving the gift brought joy to the gift. You see see what I'm saying? Why are we so sad? We're the dog, by the way, and the poop metaphor plays real well. Why are we so satisfied in Jesus? Because he is so overjoyed to receive us as a gift from the Father, because he is about the Father's will. He has come to do the Father's will, and the will of the Father is to give people eternal life. And so when the, the Father says, Son, here, and we're the gift, we look in the eyes of Jesus, and we see the love and the joy of him in receiving us from the Father, and yes, Father, thank you. I love this gift. And maybe he said, I'm gonna have to pick up a lot of poop. And, and we, we are like Scout. We look at the pleasure of Jesus in receiving us, and what do we do? Do we go, we are a pretty good gift? (sighs) No. We said, oh, I love you so much. And then, you know, again, to carry out the metaphor, we jump all over him. And we just adore him. And we want to be near him and in his lap. And we want to be held by him. And we want to run around with him. I mean, like, they were inseparable. Right? That's the best metaphor I got. The father... If you've come to Christ, you find him so satisfying in part because the Father drew you to him, because the Father gave you to him, and he takes such pleasure in you as the Father's good gift. Not because you or I are particularly that special, but because the Father doesn't give bad gifts. The Father in his wisdom has given that gift to the Son, and then we take pleasure because we know that he says, I'll never get tired of this gift. I'm never gonna cast you out. You need to cling to that promise, by the way. You need to memorize it, right? John 6, 37, you need to memorize it. All that the Father gives me will come to me and I will never what? I will never cast him out, never. Everybody say never. 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 Jesus never goes, I'm tired of the gift. And we've all seen our kids get tired of their gift like a week later, the thing they wanted so badly. And it's like, well, now I'm ready for the next toy. 
I'm ready for the next thing. And I think we think that maybe that happens in the heavenlies, and it does not. Jesus never tires of the gift of the Father. He is well pleased with it always and forever, and he never casts out the gift the Father gave him. Isn't that good news? Yeah, it's part of why he's so satisfying. So listen, friends, if you're part of that crowd, you kind of are on the fringe of, you know, interest in Jesus, but maybe it's, I mean, let's be honest. Maybe it's been more about, like, I, I want a good life, and I think he can give me one, you know? Can I just tell you, stop settling for lesser breads? Here's the great thing. When you find your ultimate satisfaction in Jesus, all the lesser breads, it doesn't mean he stops giving them provision and care and love, you know, I mean, and he gives different ones to different ones of us. And they're to be enjoyed, but they're to be enjoyed for his sake. So stop, stop being satisfied with just the lesser bread. If you're skeptical, I, man, I hope you hear that Jesus has this deep ability to satisfy. And look, it's a supernatural thing, but here's my question to you is, do you sense that drawing work of the Father? I pray you do. As his word is proclaimed, he intends to draw you. That's what the Gospel of John's all about, that you would see him and believe. So I, I would believe that if you're in here today or you're out there today watching us somehow, um, that he would be saying to you, like, just pay attention. I'm just asking you to, to, to listen up. Because my sense is that it's probably that, you know, I, man, I, I, just that drawing work of like that invitational, come, 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 come. It's very possible you're sensing that, and my prayer would be that you would yield to it. Don't resist, don't resist it. Look, there's such sweetness to be found, okay? And those of you who are disciples of Jesus, you're his followers, and you, you adore him, but maybe you don't always know why. I hope that today we put a little bit of meat on that bone for you. I hope we helped help you understand why at this deep, intellectual, relational, emotional, existential level, he is so satisfying so that you would say, you know what? I never need to look anywhere else. There is complete contentment. Jesus is the bread of life. Next week, we'll look at Jesus being the light of the world. Uh, and so, pray that you'll come prepared to feast on that meal that he will give us, all right? Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, thank you, thank you, thank you. You are good, you are faithful, you are wise, you are loving. We pray that we've seen you clearly today. Would you take your word, plant it in our hearts, that it would reap a harvest of righteousness. And Lord, I pray that you would, yeah, just thinking about those words of Isaiah, as we now prepare to sing to you, may we sing like people who are deeply satisfied in you, that we find our ultimate satisfaction in you, and may we not be uh, like those whose mouths declare your praises, but whose hearts are far from you. If that's the case for any friends, brothers, sisters, neighbors today, draw that heart back. Take away that calcified sheen that sometimes builds up on us. Make the heart tender. Yeah, receive our praises now, Father. It's our delight to give them to you through the Son. In his name we pray, amen.